For over three years, Jesus was followed by a group of twelve disciples. Peter, James, John, and nine others. They followed this preacher from Nazareth all over Palestine, believing him to be the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And Jesus preached about the coming yet already present kingdom of God. Jesus did things only God Himself could do. He could control storms. He could give sight to the blind. He could heal the lame. He could feed thousands with just a Sunday afternoon lunch. Jesus could even raise the dead. But it seemed like there was one thing that Jesus couldn't do. And that was to save Himself. I mean, if He was the Messiah... Where were the angel armies of God coming to defend the Lord's anointed one? They looked at Jesus up on that cross and they wondered, were we mistaken about Jesus? Or was God up to something that they just didn't understand? And Jesus often said and did things that left the disciples befuddled. But if this was just some lesson or test, did Jesus take things too far this time? That's where we leave Jesus and His band of followers on Good Friday. Jesus' followers are scared. They're confused. They're grieving. They're lonely. They're hiding in the dark corners of Jerusalem as their leader died. As far as the disciples were concerned, it was over. That was it. They didn't think it would end like this. They had not yet associated the events on Friday with the ancient prophecies, such as Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Instead, these events left them with a sense of utter helplessness and despair and shame at their denials and their desertion of Jesus. But just as on Good Friday, this cross was bare, and it was stark, and it was harsh, and it was a symbol of death on Sunday morning, Something amazing happened. On Sunday morning, something happened that was so significant that the Christian faith would crumble if it were not true. That old cross went from being a symbol of death to a symbol of life, from a symbol of starkness to a symbol of beauty as that tomb was left empty and Jesus rose from the dead. William Lane Craig, who's a Christian apologist, suggests that without the belief in the resurrection, the Christian faith could not have come into being. He says the disciples would have remained crushed and defeated men. Even if they had continued to remember Jesus as their beloved teacher, His crucifixion would have silenced any hope of His being the Messiah. The cross would remain the sad, shameful end of His career. And so it's crucial for us to understand the historical undeniable realities of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and consider carefully how we respond. Now, last week was Palm Sunday, but I preached a message on the cross. We turned to John chapter 19 and examined the events of Jesus' crucifixion. Of all that Jesus suffered and endured, we looked at it from a historical perspective, even a medical perspective. And then we talked about the spiritual realities that these events pointed us to. That because of what Christ suffered and endured on the cross, because He gave His life in our place, salvation is ours. That's what the cross gives to us. But we also talked about what the cross demands of us. And it demands that we submit to Jesus Christ, not only as Savior, but as Lord. Well, today I want us to look at the next chapter. 
I want us to look at John chapter 20. If you'll turn to John 20 with me so that we can discover the historical realities of the resurrection of Christ and how Jesus' disciples responded to this reality-shaking, world-changing event. Because the disciples didn't know that they were about to experience a greater joy than any joy they could ever have known. And in this passage, Christ brings the truth of the resurrection with its accompanying joy to His followers. And that means you and me as well. Because their experience is our experience. I want us to look at three realities of the resurrection this morning. And the first of those realities is the reality of the empty tomb. The reality that the tomb is empty. Now, if you'll look back in chapter 19, the last few verses in chapter 19, actually beginning with verse 38, you'll see that a man named Joseph of Arimathea, he was one of the Jews, one of the Pharisees, one of the leaders of the Jewish high council. But he was a secret follower of Jesus. So he went to Pilate and he requested Jesus' body so he could bury Jesus. And Pilate gave him Jesus' body. And then another secret follower of Jesus, a man named Nicodemus, who was also one of the Pharisees, he came with Joseph and they wrapped Jesus' body with about a 100 pounds of spices and they took Jesus and laid him in a new garden tomb. And this is where Jesus lay. It's Friday night, all day Saturday, until Easter Sunday morning. Sometime before dawn on that morning when Jesus rose from the dead. And so unaware that Jesus has already risen from the dead, his, some of his female followers, there were several ladies who followed Jesus, they came to the tomb to further anoint his body with spices and to mourn his body on this first day of the week. Now, the four Gospels, if you look across the four Gospels, we learn that those women were Mary Magdalene, Salome, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And these devoted women arrived just at daybreak, and through that faint morning light, they could barely see, but what they saw shocked them. The stone over the entrance to that tomb had been rolled away. Now, I imagine as they saw that, they probably looked at each other and wondered, has somebody broken in? Or maybe were we mistaken? Maybe Jesus wasn't buried here. Did, 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 did Joseph and Nicodemus maybe bury him in another tomb? And then they thought, well, and if this is the tomb, then where are the Roman soldiers? There are supposed to be Roman soldiers guarding this tomb. Not quite sure what to do. The women decided to report back to the rest of the disciples. And so Mary Magdalene runs on ahead back to Jerusalem with a message to the other disciples. And we pick up the story there in John chapter 20, beginning on verse, in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running back to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the, the one who Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put Him. So Peter and the other disciple, and that other disciple is John, the, the one who's writing this gospel, they started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived, went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. And that cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still don't, did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So John tells us 
that when he got there and looked in, he saw and believed. But what did John believe? Did he simply believe the tomb was empty? No, I mean, he didn't have to believe that. He could see that with his own eyes. No, John believed that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. John was the first person in all the world to believe in the risen Jesus Christ. But why did John believe that? There was something he saw in the tomb that made him believe. Before we look at that, we need to understand some, some, some of the distinctives of Jewish burial practices in the time of Christ. Now, we know from history that the Egyptians embalmed their dead. We know that the Greeks and the Romans cremated their dead. The Jews did neither of these. Rather, the Jews would take their dead and they would wrap them, in, they would swaddle them basically in strips of linen cloth. And then they would, they would layer those strips of cloth with spices uh, to mask the odor. That was, that was in lieu of embalming. That's what they would do. And then they would take a, a separate cloth. John tells us there's a separate cloth that was wrapped around the head. And we know that they would do that sort of in the, like, a, like a turban and would wrap the head in that separate cloth. Now, once wrapped, they would then lay the body on a stone ledge in a tomb that would be hewn out of the side of a cliff or a hill. Now, you imagine there's not a whole lot of space in Israel to do very many of those. So they would reuse these tombs. So they'd place the body, they'd leave the body in that tomb about two years. And after two years, all the soft tissue will have decayed. And they would go in and they would collect the bones and put them in an ossuary. That's a bone box. And you can go to museums and see examples of these. These stone boxes they would put the bones in. And they would take that box and bury that in the family plot. And that meant that the tomb... And that ledge was free for somebody else to use. That which is why it's significant that John points out that Jesus was laid in a new tomb that no one else had ever used. This was a brand new tomb that had been freshly carved out of the side of the hill. Now, the details here, it's kind of confusing all this. Somebody's going in, not going in. They're looking, they're seeing. There's a lot of focus on these strips of cloth lying there. The details here are significant. John uses three different Greek words that in the English they're all translated looked or saw. So you read, he looked, he saw, he saw, he looked. There's three Greek words and each one has a slightly different meaning. So first, from the tomb's entrance, John looked in at the linen cloth lying there. That Greek word is the word blepo. And that simply indicates that he just noticed. It's, it's very simple. He just he saw. He just noticed that there were cloths lying in the tomb. But when Peter ran into the tomb, that Greek word is the word thoreos, which is the word we get theater from. Thoreos means that Peter walked in and he took his time and he examined. He took inventory. He, he took it all in and, and made note of the different cloths and how they were lying there. He was examining. You, you go to a movie theater, you just don't look, you watch. You take it in, and that's what Peter was doing in the tomb. And once he followed Peter inside the tomb, John said that he saw and believed. And that word saw is a third word. That's the Greek word eidon. And that word means that John perceived. He didn't just see. He didn't just notice. He didn't just kind of take it all in. He saw and understood the significance of what he was seeing. See, Peter, for all of his examination of the scene, he didn't grasp the significance. But John, who initially just saw the strips, when he went in, he perceived what they meant. That Jesus had forsaken his burial cloths forever because Jesus has risen never to die again. That's what John understood. 
Now, why did John understand that? Why did that dawn on him? Well, I think it's important to, to look at a story that only John records out of the four Gospels. And that's a story that took place a few weeks before. Jesus has gone into the town of Bethany to the house of his friends Lazarus and Lazarus' sisters Mary and Martha. Now, the reason Jesus has gone is because he got word that Lazarus was sick and Lazarus died. And by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. So Mary and Martha take, take Jesus out to the tomb. And Jesus commands them to remove the stone from that tomb. And he calls Lazarus forth. And Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead. But John tells us that when Lazarus came out of that tomb, he was still wrapped up in his burial cloths. His hands and his feet were still bound in cloth. His head was still wrapped in cloth. And Jesus had to command the people to unbind him, to let him loose. You see, Lazarus had to be set free. He had to be, he had to be let loose so that he could take hold of the new life in this world that Jesus has given him. But when John looks in Jesus' tomb, he sees the cloths laying right there as if Jesus' body just came right out from within them. They're just laying there. And John understands that Jesus has forsaken his burial cloths because his burial, his resurrection is better than Lazarus' resurrection. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he would die again. Jesus was raised never to die again. He came to life into God's new eternal order of life. I can just hear John saying, Peter, don't you see it? Don't you see? Nobody's done anything with Jesus' body. Don't you understand? It's gone right through the grave cloths. He's risen. Jesus is risen. He's alive. The only reason the stone was rolled back was so we could see in to see that He's not here. Praise God. He's alive. Let's go tell the others. You can just hear John saying that. But Peter and John had a very different response to that empty tomb. And the response we should have is the response that John had. John 20 calls us to be like John, to see, to understand, and to believe as he did. It calls us to the response of faith. To see and understand and believe. See, Peter was confused. Peter was fearful by what this meant, but John was rejoicing in faith. And when we believe as John did in the risen Lord, it changes our lives forever. The whole world becomes new because a living Christ is an all-powerful Christ. A living Christ is a present Christ. A living Christ gives us life abundant now. A living Christ gives us life eternal forever. A living Christ gives us victory. When we have that kind of faith in the living Christ, that's the life that awaits us. How will you respond to the empty tomb? You don't have to understand all the details about it to believe it. You know, Peter, that was his problem. He was tripped up by questions. He was too busy trying to wrap his mind around it. But John saw through the eyes of faith, through what eyes do you see the empty tomb this morning? The second reality that we're presented with here in John 20 is the reality of not just the empty tomb. If the tomb was just empty, that doesn't mean a whole lot. If the tomb was just empty, it means, well, Jesus maybe is somewhere else. But it's not just an empty tomb. It's also the reality of the risen Lord. The reality of the, of the risen Lord. Now, though John was the first to believe in the risen Lord, it wasn't John, it wasn't James, it wasn't Peter, it wasn't any of the other twelve that were the first to see the risen Lord. No, this honor, the first to see the risen Christ, belonged to one of the most unlikely people of that time it could belong to, a woman. Mary Magdalene. 
See, when Peter and John sprinted to the tomb, they kind of left poor Mary back there in the dust. And then as they're running back from the tomb to tell the others, I imagine they passed Mary again. And so Mary, you know, comes back to the tomb alone. And there she stands for the second time that day, alone, uninformed, weeping outside the tomb. Look with me in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. You know, like I said, passing Mary on the road. Peter, he's, he's too preoccupied with his questions and doubts. John is too overwhelmed with joy. They'll go right past Mary. And Mary finds herself standing outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, and the, the word here is the same word used in the story of Lazarus to describe the weeping of the people there. It's, this is the traditional eastern death well. And for Mary, this wailing, this weeping comes from the depths of her spirit because her heart is just indescribably broken. I mean, Mary, the Bible tells us that she was possessed by seven demons. And Jesus cast those demons out of her. Jesus set Mary free from a life of spiritual bondage and sin. And because she had been forgiven much, she loved much. She was such a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And now she stands there just just broken over the disgrace of Christ's crucifixion on the cross. And now his tomb is empty and she doesn't know where his body is and she doesn't know you know what nefarious purpose somebody has, has taken his body for. She's beside herself with grief. And as she wept, she bends over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? And very matter-of-factly, she responded, They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put Him. At this, she turned around. Now, I like, to, I like to think that at this point, she's looking at these angels, and she realizes they're looking past her at someone behind her. So at this point, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, you know, that's tending to the tombs and, and to the cemetery there, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will go get him. Now, if Mary was so grief-stricken that she could look in that tomb and see angels and not be fazed by them, right? I mean, that's just really amazing when you think about it. Just imagine how unprepared she is for what's about to happen. Jesus said to her, Mary. He simply spoke her name as He had done so many times before. And it's as if the scales of grief fell from her eyes. She turned toward Him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to Me. So she sees Him, she says, teacher, and she just grabs Him. She wraps her arms around Jesus, clings to Him. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus was saying, Mary, don't cling to me. He's about to establish a new relationship with His followers. He's about to give them a comfort that is far greater than His physical presence could ever bring. And so Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that He had said these things to her. It's significant that the risen Christ 
appears first to Mary Magdalene. A woman, a woman with a, with a you know, a, 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 a not very good background. A woman who had a questionable background and reputation. That Jesus would appear to her. You see, in, in, in this day, women were little more than slaves. They didn't have any rights. They, their, their testimony would not even hold up in a court of law, was not even admissible in a court of law. And yet Jesus chose her to carry the first news that He's risen from the dead, the greatest news the world's ever heard. We shouldn't be surprised because Jesus often taught that the first shall be last. That if you want to be a leader, you must first be a servant. That it's the weak and foolish things of this world that overturn the wise and the strong things of this world. That it is the poor in spirit who are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, of course, Jesus appears first to a woman such as Mary. How must she have felt at that moment? Can you imagine? I mean, she's been on a roller coaster ride of emotions for the past week. And here she is being sent off by Jesus with this message for the rest of the disciples. It must have been very satisfying for her to stand in front of those men and say, Peter, James, John, guess what? I've seen Jesus. And He sent me to tell you that He's coming to meet you. What a day it had been. Multiple troops to the tomb. Multiple retellings of these stories. The report of these disciples on the road to Emmaus encountering Jesus. Some dark threats and rumors too. But now it's Sunday evening. And despite all the excitement, the gathered followers of Jesus are afraid. So they're gathered together in a private room behind closed doors. They're sitting together just trying to sort all this out. What does this mean when Jesus appeared? We pick that up there in verse 19. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So somehow, though nobody's unlocked the door, Jesus is standing in their midst. Their hearts are racing. The adrenaline's pumping. Their goosebumps have goosebumps. It's an amazing moment. And Jesus greets them with the traditional shalom. Peace be with you. But the disciples are stunned into silence. They're struggling in their heart between disbelief and joy. And Jesus, always so gentle and patient, understanding their hesitation, lovingly shows them His wounds. And the disciples were overjoyed. Luke tells us they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. It was just too good to be true. They were pinching themselves. Is this a dream? I need to wake up. This is just too amazing to be true. So Jesus asked for something to eat. And He eats a meal in front of them and says, Look, I'm no ghost. I can eat. I'm here. Touch my hands and see. Their response was the response of joy. You know, we sometimes struggle with real genuine joy because like Mary in the garden, we want to cling to what we've always known, what's safe and familiar. But God is always on the move. God is always doing something new. God is always calling us out of our comfort zones and into His kingdom. And for these disciples, things would never be the same. Things were not going to go back to the way they had been these past three and a half years. Things were going to be better, different, but better. 
Jesus was giving them something better than His physical presence. He was giving them His Holy Spirit. His authority, His, His presence would be within them always, even to the end of the age. And I know whenever God is doing something new, it can be scary. We're tempted to cling to the familiar and the comfortable, the good old days, right? But God is calling us to embrace joy. God is calling us to embrace the great adventure of His amazing grace. What a day this had been. Without a doubt, the most dramatic day in the history of the world. But one disciple had missed the whole thing. And that brings us to the final reality that we must face when it comes to the resurrection. That's the reality of doubt. Thomas. You know, he was dealing with his emotions differently than the others. He didn't want to be together with them. He wanted to be on his own alone. Now, we often call doubt as Tom, uh, Thomas doubting Thomas, right? We, we, he's known for his doubt. But one thing, you can't call him as a coward. When Jesus was going back to Jerusalem earlier in his ministry, even though there were threats against him, it was Thomas who said, well, let's go with him so we can die with him. And Thomas meant it. He would have died with Jesus. He was no coward. He was brave. He was fierce. But Thomas was a realist. He was a pragmatist. He had to be able to see and touch and reason before he could believe. And that's why Thomas said, give me proof and I'll believe. He demanded something more than the hysterical stories he was getting from his friends. But his request for more information is not the same as the secular skepticism we see in our world today. See, some people today, like Thomas, say, show me proof. But it's not so they will believe. It's so that they can come up with alternate theories to explain away the proof. And over the centuries, there have been multiple alternate theories to try to explain away the resurrection, and every single one of them have been easily debunked. For example, the swoon theory says, well, Jesus didn't die. He just passed out. They laid him in the tomb, and he just, he just came back, you know, he just woke back up. But to believe that is to deny the details of the crucifixion that we know from history and from the Gospels. You know, I talked last week about how brutally he had been beaten. Most people die from that. We talked about how he couldn't breathe on the cross, how his body was filling with, with, with carbon dioxide. When they thrust the spear into his side, it pierced into his heart and blood and water flowed. There's no way you can take the gospel seriously and believe that Jesus didn't die on that cross. Then there's another theory that says, well, Jesus' disciples stole the body and just spread the rumor that he was alive. Well, just a little bit of reason debunks that because... These 12 men, this ragtag group of guys that in Jesus' ministry could never get along with each other, could never agree on anything, how in the world are they going to agree together on the details of a lie and then every one of them be willing to be arrested and to be persecuted and to, and to suffer and to die for something they knew was not true? How many of us would willingly go through that for something we knew wasn't true? And yet not a single one of them ever recanted. Not a single one of them ever turned on the others. Every one of these men died believing that they had seen the risen Jesus. Really, it takes more faith to believe these alternate theories than it takes to believe in the biblical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the truth is, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, then we should discount everything He ever said or did. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, He's either a lunatic or He's a liar. That's why the resurrection is critical to the Christian faith. Now, I understand that the difficulties of belief may be great for some. But I want you to hear that the absurdities of unbelief are even greater. 
And the liabilities of unbelief are even far greater because if we don't believe in the risen Jesus Christ, we will not share in His resurrection life and we will be eternally separated from God. We must believe in the resurrection. And so praise God, there's a remedy for Thomas's doubt. There's a remedy for our doubt. Jesus is so patient. Jesus gave Thomas eight days to sort it all out. And as he heard the stories, and as he saw how these men that he'd spent three and a half years with were somehow different, they'd been changed, he began to think maybe they're telling the truth when all of a sudden we pick up the story and finish it in verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand, put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and have yet believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. You see, Thomas may have been slow to believe, but he was not slow to grasp the implications of the resurrection. That Jesus was not only His teacher, but Jesus was His Lord and His God. The evidence was clear. It was substantive. It was irrefutable. And so how did Thomas respond? He didn't just respond in faith. He didn't just respond in joy. His faith and his joy led him to respond in worship. And he worshipped Jesus. It must have been as if a dammed up river of hope burst in, in Thomas's heart. And all the skepticism and all the doubt melted away as he stood face to face with his Lord and Savior and he worshipped him as his God. And the evidence for us, though it's 2,000 years removed, is no less substantive, is no less irrefutable, is no less real. In fact, we not only have the same prophetic scriptures they have, but we have something they didn't have. We have 2,000 years worth of testimonies of lives changed by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's why Jesus ends here with a final beatitude on those like us who do not see and yet believe. We have great joy now, but we will someday share in the likeness of of Christ's resurrection ourselves. And in the meantime, we can know the power of the risen Lord today in our lives. Maybe like Thomas, life has left you stressed. You've suffered setbacks and disappointments. Maybe they've even left you a little skeptical. But the resurrection of Jesus calls us to doubt our doubts, to question our questions, and to trust and worship the One who defeated death and the grave, because nothing can keep Jesus down. Nothing can overcome Him. And when we place our faith in Him, He places His life in us. That first resurrection gives us three realities. The empty tomb, the risen Savior, and our own tendency to doubt. But the question is, how will you respond to the reality of the resurrection? With fear over what you don't understand? Clinging to what is comfortable and familiar? With skepticism and doubt? Or will you respond with joy? With joy over the new things God is doing in your life and wants to do in your life? Will you respond with faith? Believing, even though you don't understand everything, even though you can't see it with your own eyes, will you respond with worship for the One who died and rose again that you could know the forgiveness of the Father and have life abundant now and life eternal with Him? How will you respond 
to the resurrection today. Some of you may need to respond in faith. You need to come and place your faith for the first time in Jesus Christ. Place your hand in His nail-scarred hand and let Him give you forgiveness and grace. Let Him give you life. Let Him change the story that you're writing right now and give you a better story. Some of you need to respond by coming to unite with this church family. Some of you need to respond by just maybe coming to this altar and saying, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me for not having the faith I need to have. Forgive me for not living a joy-filled life. Forgive me for not worshiping You as my Lord and my God every moment of every day. Whatever your need is today, maybe you feel like you're in the tomb. Maybe you feel like you're on that cross. Today, Jesus wants to give you resurrection life. He wants you to know the joy, the hope that is yours through Him. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, thank You for this amazing story. The story that has stood the test of 2,000 years. And Lord, though the world tries to rail against the truth of this story, Father, we pray that we would experience it in each of our hearts. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. May that be the prayer of everyone in this place. I pray that everyone would respond to the reality of the resurrection as Your Spirit leads. In Jesus' name.